When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. everybody and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. It is almost 1 a.m. on the East Coast as we record this. My daughter is asleep, so I'm trying not to wake her with this introduction. Uh, joining me to talk about the USA's 2-0 win over Canada in the CONCACAF Nations League final is a man who is presently hiding out in Allegiant Stadium, hoping no one comes and finds him. It's Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. How's the bunker going? It does look like you're recording in a bunker. I, I essentially I am. I've climbed up to the very top of Allegiant Stadium in <laughs> Paradise, Nevada. I thought it was in Las Vegas. Apparently it's in Paradise. You learn something new every week. Um, I'm currently watching them vacuum up confetti from the grass on the stadium floor, like 8,000 feet below where I'm sitting. It's a red, white, and blue color confetti, as hey. it should be for the Nations yep. League champions. Before we dive any deeper into that, Taylor, I, I want to give you props. You mentioned it. It is absurdly late on the East Coast as we're recording this. I want the listeners to know... Like Taylor, Taylor is genuinely so committed to making the best possible product and show. He stayed up extremely late to do this. It's going to be a good show. Taylor, props oh, to yeah, you. Man. I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, thank you. I appreciate that. It is very exciting to be here. There's a lot to discuss. And I will, as always, reiterate, not like I'm working at a coal mine. Watching soccer and staying up to talk about soccer is just <laughs> fine with me, especially when it was such a compelling game, but also a convincing win at the same time. Before we get into that, Joe, you now have me wondering... If Canada had won, do they just hold the blue confetti and only let the red and white down? Do you think they let more red and white down? How do you think that works? It's a really good question, Taylor. I won't lie. I was considering that in the moments before you sent me the link so uh-huh. uh, to, to start the, the recording process. I, I would imagine there were two separate piles of confetti. Uh, it, it is possible that they were pre-separated into white confetti, red confetti, blue confetti. That probably would have been logistically and, you know, like uh, economically the best decision. I don't know that CONCACAF always makes those kinds of decisions. So I'm going to put <laughs> some money down on two different batches of confetti. Uh, all right. I like the two different batches of confetti, which means <laughs> I don't know what they do with with the remaining one. I guess they just hold it up there in case, I don't know, the Chiefs ever win in Las Vegas. Yep. Uh, yep. We'll, That's we'll right. They're just, they're just like vats of confetti from past failed soccer championship <laughs> yes, contenders. Exactly. And they're all used for random <laughs> NFL matchups at random times. Taylor, I don't know how you knew that, but you totally did. I really wish that were the case. That would make uh, confetti explosions all the more enjoyable. We should probably talk about the actual game, but I do kind of want to stick with the celebrations for a moment. The stadium, not particularly full. I'm going to guess that a lot of that was Mexico being eliminated in the semifinals. Uh, What was the atmosphere like, Joe? And especially what were the celebrations like from what you could see? Because it did seem like the the players were pretty stoked. We saw Weston McKinney running around, though he couldn't play due to suspension. He was filming. He was in on it. But uh, yeah, what was the atmosphere like from start to finish? The atmosphere was good, but it it was nothing Mm -hmm. compared to the semifinal against Mexico, right? And you, you mentioned it. Uh, it, a lot of that has to do with Mexico not being in this game, right? The U.S. it seems to me can't fully carry a semifinal on their home, uh, a final, excuse me, on their home mm-hmm. turf in a stadium as big as Allegiant, 60, 70,000 seats 
on their own. The, the, also, the challenge here, to be fair to the U.S., is I believe these tickets were sold in sets. So if you bought a ticket to the first game of the day, you also bought a ticket to the second game of the day. They come together. Tickets in Upper Bowl tonight, maybe ah, $50, stuff like that. Yeah. Mexico fans probably bought tickets for today thinking they'd be in the final. Then they lose to the U.S. and they're in the third place game and they decide not to show up. Right. I think that was probably a, a lot of what we saw tonight. That said... Like, I thought the crowd was pretty good. It is an open-air press box. I legitimately could not remember in the fog post the Mexico game the last time we <laughs> talked, so that is my report. It is an open-air press box. Don't know how I forgot that. And, like, the crowd was loud. Like, USA chants were loud. I, I thought they did a good job, other than maybe some people not fully coordinated. But the atmosphere was great, and, and the celebrations. Wait, what do you mean? What was the not fully oh, coordinated? Just, like, I don't know. I play a lot of music, and I think the uh -huh. folks on Patreon know that I, I play piano and some other instruments. I think I've done oh. banjo live on Bleacher oh, Report before. You have indeed. But, like, people come in and they just – they don't have any sense of rhythm, right? I'm not a good dancer, but I understand rhythm and timing. And somebody starts a USA chant or yeah. they're singing along to the national anthem and they're, like, a full measure and a half behind. And it, it does hurt me a little it, bit okay. in my head. Yeah. That, I could not – dude, I'm, okay. Off on a tangent immediately. <laughs> but, like, the the when they showed the crowd, it kept looking like there was some weird delay because everybody seemed to be singing different parts of the song I think that was at different real. points. I think that was okay. real. Okay. <laughs> that makes sense. And yet, not the worst national anthem performance of the evening because I have to say, it started off troublesome from Canada. Joe, I'm guessing you could not hear it. Not But well. on the broadcast, they had them fully mic'd. It was not good. It might have been the worst <laughs> national anthem singing I've ever heard. It had that combination that you get in in like uh, in national games like this of loud, sort of like delivered very loud, but also kind of flat and without emotion. So it's just this weird loud robot kind of screaming at you. That was uh, maybe the starting point. And then continuing with the screaming, I don't know how audible John Herdman was in the press box, but you could hear him for the first 20 minutes just screaming constantly to the point where it was really fun to hear him yell Richie and you'd see Richie Larea turn and be like okay and then we'll walk like <laughs> three feet to the right John Herdman was on one this yeah. evening so yeah. I I'm sad you couldn't hear that but it uh it made for the for the replay rather uh all the more enjoyable I I'm excited because I re I will rewatch this game at some point in the next few days after I get mm -hmm. back home to Phoenix Herdman had an eventful evening uh, I didn't hear that part from him but in the press conference afterwards he had quite a lot to say about the lack of funding that's coming from the Canadian mm -hmm. Soccer you know, Federation in terms of his team not being given as much time to prepare for this game as the U.S. Not, I think he did a good job of not making it a full-on excuse. Like He gave a lot of the mm -hmm. tactical and on-field reasons why they, they came up short tonight. But yeah, he also mentioned like this, it is a real problem. They have a World Cup coming to their nation in mm -hmm. three years, and it feels like the commitment from some of the stakeholders higher up the food chain just isn't there. And, and that's it's an unfortunate thing for Canada. To loop it back around to the U.S., though, in terms of the celebrations, uh, in the mix zone, Christian Pulisic comes out and he is covered in beer. Uh, there's other <laughs> members of the staff, not just players that are covered in beer. Uh, he's got the, the very, very much real signs of having been in a locker room that was celebrating. There's a clip of Tim Weah on, I think, Instagram Live that's now going around mm -hmm. the Internet. And the locker room is absolutely blasting Breaking Free from High School Musical. It's a fantastic clip. Go look it up. Vibes no are idea good. What that is. Taylor, good to vibes, know. vibes are fantastic. You you've got a little girl someday. I think you, you probably will know. Um, it, it's a good time to good be a U.S. men's national team fan right now. Even Gio Reyna looked you know, stoked after this. He's injured uh, uh, right now. He came off in this game, didn't play the second half, I believe, with a calf injury. That seems not minor. So yeah. we'll see what happens with that. I guess it's a good time to be injured given that you've got the offseason coming up quickly. But... Vibes are very, very good around the team after this win. I believe four players on the roster are under the legal drinking age. So I don't know how they were approaching that one. It is always funny to try to see them keep the 
People who are under 21, apart from the celebrations, I'm guessing that didn't happen so much tonight. And Joe, I'm glad that you bring up uh, the issues Herdman raised, and that is definitely a valid point. I think we also talked plenty in the USA-Mexico review about the kind of state of the Mexican Federation and how this is not a particularly strong Mexican national team, maybe Mexican pool right now as well. So I want to add those two caveats and then say, yeah. watching this game, it did feel... I'm I'm not very comfortable making big sweeping statements. I'm going to make one now. This did feel like the turning of the page. This felt like a new chapter yes. in yes. the United States breathing past Mexico, Trace Acero. And then tonight, I, I, I felt like there were moments that Canada looked threatening. I think if you play this game 10 times, what I landed on is I think Canada wins it maybe twice because there are opportunities there when maybe the ball is under hit, the ball is over hit, the ball is a little bit too wide. And I think... If Canada pounce on some opportunities they had in the first 20 minutes or so, it's a very different game. But other than that, and other than those few moments, I mean, we're still saying like eight out of 10, or I'm still saying eight out of 10 times you play this game, I think the US wins. And it's a US team that was missing key starters, obviously due to suspension, also missing players due to injury. Miles Robinson pulled uh, because of an injury he picked up, and you have people not even in the roster. And yet, the U.S. didn't look particularly troubled. Uh, credit to uh, to the coach, uh, B.J. Callahan, who I almost called him Patches O'Houlihan, uh, for making adjustments, uh, changing the shape, but I think also really just playing a very effective game plan and nullifying what Canada were offering. And so to see us come up against right now the two strongest teams in CONCACAF and yep. beat, beat them uh, by a 5-0 scoreline, no goals against, I, I'm very, very excited about this U.S. team and this U.S. pool right now. It felt very much like a turning of the page. Yeah. The last page being proving that you can hang at this level with a new group of players. I think about two summers ago, the U.S. played Mexico in the Nations League final, and it was an absolutely insane game where the U.S. was was maybe a little bit fortunate to win. It felt like either team would have been fortunate to win just because of how crazy that game was last time around. Penalty kicks, scuffing off grass, you know, extra time, all that stuff. It, it was bonkers. It was not a game where either team was miles ahead of the other. And yet the U.S. still won that trophy. Then they come in and they win the Gold Cup trophy as well. It was a sign that they were here and ready to compete with a new group. Fast forward to this summer. Fast forward to this competition. And the Gold Cup will be very different. But fast forward to, to this tournament, this Nations League Final Four. The U.S. weren't here just to sort of show that they can hang. I think there was a real acknowledgement in the group that they were here to show that they are the dominant force. Like they were here to perform to expectations. With the expectations being this team has the most talent in CONCACAF. They have the most depth in CONCACAF. Like, they should come out here and, and show that they can do it. And they absolutely did that. And Greg Berhalter mentioned in his press conference on Thursday to, to a group of us, basically he said, we're going to have to learn how to beat big opponents and knock out games. And he said, that's the next step for this group. And I think this is part of that, right? Canada is not the biggest opponent ever. They're not the biggest opponent the U.S. will face in the next 18 months or before the World Cup or any of that stuff. But they are a good team with genuinely talented superstar attacking players and the u.s controlled the meaningful portions of this game like they come out they get a 2-0 lead before halftime canada put them under pressure for the second 45 but it was very much a bend but don't break kind of moment for the u.s when they needed to go out and get a goal the united states when they needed to go and be on the front foot they were like it was pretty possession it was you know clean attacking play but also 
savvy and, and smart. They weren't always yeah. trying to build from the back against Canada's press. They, in fact, they rarely oh, did, right? There was, was a lot of long thing. balls. It was from my Matt favorite Turner. thing. Yep. And they managed the game really well. Taylor, you talk about that all the time, and, and Canada talked about that in the buildup to this, is in World Cup qualifying. They topped the World Cup qualifying table, the Ocho, right? And, and Canada felt like they did a really good job. Alistair Johnson said they felt like they did a really good job of you know, kind of controlling some of those extracurriculars and, and getting those things to go their way. The U.S. did that tonight. It was Brendan Aronson walking off the field at a snail's pace and Tejon Buchanan <laughs> shoving him and saying, hey, bro, move it along. We're down 2-0. Yep. Like the U.S. did not everything right, but they did so much right that they very clearly, I'll make the generalization, like this yeah. is the best team in CONCACAF by a fairly wide margin right now. Probably that was the case coming in. They showed it. They lived up to expectation every bit. That 5-0 aggregate scoreline feels absolutely fair mm-hmm. and correct to me. While we're talking about some of that gamesmanship uh i wanted to note in the maybe 86 87th minute uh, one little one uh is pulisic goes down uh and he the the ref comes over and i think is coming over to basically tell him like hey like get up you're wasting time uh and it's after there's a collision uh, and pulisic at waits for the referee to come near him and then basically the ref's like basically offering him a hand like come on get back up we got to get this going and pulisic as that hand is being offered rolls the other way <laughs> to get up and stands up slowly and then bends over the ball after the free kick because the ref's basically saying like, yes, it's your free kick, but let's go. And he rolls away. And I think it's smart because number one, it just means that he's in control of getting back up and taking his time and adjusting his shin pads. But also I think if the ref pulls you up, you're immediately having a conversation with the official. And so to avoid that, to avoid any sort of like, hey, next one, it's a card, but instead to kind of like roll away from the official, it's the only reason why you wouldn't accept that hand up. So I just thought like there's just little moments of craftiness like that in this game where you could see the U.S. be able to kind of like back up what they were doing. Even Pulisic, when he runs over and, and gets into it a little bit, he then calms it down and walks away and, and doesn't really get involved in any other altercations. And it was uh, Vittoria who had come on as a sub who then goes after him and gives him like a couple more shoves and Pulisic just doesn't take the bait. And I contrast that with the two red cards against Mexico, but also some of the emotionality we've seen from the U.S. in games past when there's a lot on the line. And it just felt to me like a veteran performance where everybody did their job. Everybody tracked their runs. Everybody tracked their secondary runs or covered space, as was Jedi Robinson's job roughly 400 times in this game it was amazing to see how much work he did but but the runners were tracked the like space was limited when it needed to be and i thought the u.s's defensive game plan was just so solid that even in that second half when canada throw kitchen sink after kitchen sink at the united (laughs) states u.s changes their approach they change their formation there are opportunities for Canada, but it ends with Alfonso Davies later in the game turning under pressure and just shooting from like 40 yards out and skying his chance and just looking like, yeah, that feels about right. It just felt like the U.S. took the energy out of Canada pretty much from the jump, certainly after they went 1-0 up. And then once it was 2-0, it felt like the U.S. were completely in control. Yeah, that's, that's exactly how it felt, right? The U.S. come out in this game. They weren't dominant from the start. I think they, they maybe controlled a little bit more of the ball, even though that totally flipped because of how much Canada were pushing to get back into this game in the second half. But the U.S. didn't really give up anything. And, and that was a real question coming into this game because, let's face it, the best player in CONCACAF doesn't play for the U.S. He doesn't play for Mexico. He plays for Canada. It's Alfonso Davies. And I, I'm not sure it's particularly close. When the lineups came out, it was clear that he was starting in this game. Joe Scali was going to have his hands full, and, and he was the replacement for Serginho Dest. That's what we all assumed coming into this game with only three fullbacks in the squad. 
it was him on the right and Jedi Robinson on the left. And he did a pretty darn good job. Like mm-hmm. Brendan Aronson was going over and doubling all the time. And he was the the substitute or the, the I guess the fill-in guy for Weston McKinney after his red card from the other day. Those two players joined the lineup, as did Walker Zimmerman, who came in to replace an injured Miles Robinson. Like those players stepped up. I, I don't know that any one of them was, oh my goodness, this player just had the best game of his life. But Joe Scally showed that, mm-hmm. hey, I've gone up against Alfonso Davies before. Like, I, I know generally how to deal with them. And, and Scally's solution dealing with Davies was, one, get help from Brendan Aronson. That was that was part of it. Mm-hmm. And Aronson was a pest, and I think he did a good job basically on just special assignment Alfonso and of just making his life miserable to the point where Davies switched over 30 minutes in to the other way. Yeah. But, but like, Scally's approach was, yeah. I'm just going to keep backpedaling. Taylor, I don't know if you noticed this, but it was like a cornerback on a wide receiver. Like, a, a corner on, on some incredibly fast wide receiver, Tyree Kill or whatever, he just kept backing up and said to Alfonso Davies, like, beat me. Beat me with yeah. your service. Like, I'm not going to let you beat me with my pace because you're going to have to take three giant steps to even get to me in the first place. He said, Davies, like, play a ball into the box and, and threaten that way. And he did a couple of times, but by and large, like, I, I thought the approach from Scali worked well. I thought having Aronson on that side worked well. It was just so many things, set pieces, all of this stuff. Felt like it went the U.S.'s direction. It wasn't a fully complete performance, but, man, it was close. Yeah, Scally, I think, beaten once or twice early on, and that's usually when the U.S. has like lost a corner, conceded possession high up, and then Scally tries to make a play to limit the counterattack there. Short of that, what I noticed was him, as you said, backing off, maybe not to the, the full extent that you've just outlined, which does make a ton of sense, but I also did see him when Alfonso Davies would then go uh, deeper to try to pick the ball up off the center backs. Scally would track him, wouldn't over-pursue, wouldn't get beat in any of those moments, but then Brendan Aronson, to your point, would either help with the double team there or drop into that space that Alfonso Davies had vacated. And twice, you could see that it's a design play. Alfonso Davies stretches, then comes back. The defender goes with him. Now there's a gap to open up. There's a diagonal run in, except twice in the first 25 minutes or so, Brendan Aronson is there to cut that ball out. And and I felt like the, the that's what I talk about when I say the coverage was so good. It felt like everybody knew where they needed to be in relation to their teammates, but also in relation to what Canada were trying to do. I am very surprised by that Alfonso Davies position switch in the first half. And then he gets changed again at halftime. And then I think maybe even again later on in the game. But Joe, it, it didn't seem to me like Joe Scally was doing such an incredible job that oh, we, we've got to try him against uh, uh, Anthony Robinson. So I'm assuming there was just something that John Herdman saw. Maybe that's a pre-planned change. It comes after a, a prolonged stoppage for an injury. But even then, when he goes to Anthony Robinson's side, it's just not really on. It's Anthony Robinson himself is quite fast. And, yeah. and though I think he loses a foot race or two, nothing comes of it again. It just seemed like no matter what Canada did, especially with Alfonso Davies, it just wasn't clicking. Yeah, and, and part of that for the U.S., I agree with that, Taylor, for the most part. Like, yeah, he had a couple of moments, and you brought that up, right? But it, it mm-hmm. never really came all the way through for Canada. I, yeah. I think it was the U.S. going up as early as they did, right? 12 minutes in, Chris Richards scores that goal on a set piece. It's a Gio Reyna corner. It's a really nice goal from, from Richards who just overpowers Alistair Johnson, like man-to-man marking from Canada, and that's not a good matchup for Canada at all. Alistair Johnson is a good player. Johnson is a good player, but... Like Richards is going to win that matchup with a ball in his vicinity like 11 times out of 10. So, you know, the U.S. get that early goal, and all of a sudden, the space that Canada had hoped to attack into, the opportunities that they would have hoped to have on the break, you know, kind of disappeared. Not fully, but at that point, the U.S. has the edge, right? John Herdman said in the, in the presser after the game, you know, like when you go up, you control 
a lot of what's happening. Like, you control the game state. You control where the ball goes. You control where the game is played. And the U.S. took advantage of Canada in the early stages. They got that goal, and they were very content dictating how the rest of the match played out. I want to talk more about that goal and the second goal and many other things. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back to continue talking about the USA's opener against Canada. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Welcome back. Uh, when last we left you, we were discussing the USA's opener, uh, the corner from Gio Reyna, headed home by Chris Richards. Joe, I'm going to guess that made you very, very happy. I will give you a moment to talk about how good Chris Richards was uh, in just a second because he was very good. But with this set piece, I noticed a couple things. First off, I believe it's the second corner of the game for the United States. The first one, taken by Gio Reyna, lands in almost the exact same position or targets the exact same spot. The only difference from the first to the second is that Chris Richards makes that run towards the penalty spot and then recognizes either by design or by reacting to where it's where the ball is floating. He kind of moves towards it and then backpedals and is going to be in the same position, except Joe Scally is standing there and he runs into Joe Scally and there's a little bit of chaos and the ball kind of pops loose to the other side. The second time round, it's the exact same thing, except now Scally has taken a deeper position and now Chris Richards can backpedal, get away from Alistair Johnson, which he really does by selling that sort of near post run and then moving back and has a fairly uncontested header, even with people around him. We finally see the U.S. score off of a set piece. They said on the uh, on the broadcast that it's been over a year since the U.S. scored off of a corner. Uh, but for it to be Chris Richards getting his first goal for the U.S. to open the game off of a corner, off a great Gio Reyna ball, uh, I very much enjoyed that. Joe, how much did you enjoy Chris Richards? I mean, you just love to see CR go out there and ball. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, I mean, you, you absolutely love to see the Alabama kid go out and do that. And and it really was an excellent performance from Richards. I wrote about it, you know, immediately after the game for Bacchiola. I had the chance to sit down and, and chat with Richards, which we've talked about already. Like, yeah, you guys dude, are best friends now. We yeah, yeah, we're, we're best buds, absolutely. Like, this this dude is, is a monster. Like, he legitimately is a phenomenal athlete. In this game, I, I didn't really see him put a foot wrong or maybe not two feet wrong. Like he, he won his duels on the ground with well-timed interventions. He won balls in the air and he attacks this ball. It's, I have a few different things to say. One is to give credit to Richard. So I've kind of done that already. The other is the timing of this goal. I think is, is just funny, right? So the, the Berhalter press conference was earlier this week. It was on Thursday. I asked Greg Berhalter, mm-hmm. <laughs> like what, yeah. you know, you've had time to reflect. You've been away from the national team. Looking back on the last cycle, you know, are there any moments that you look back on and think like, okay, I want to, I want to use this to improve how we do things next time around? Or, you know, is there mm-hmm. anything about how you think about the game that's evolved? And he didn't exactly answer the question, but he he did provide a few different benchmarks that he thought weren't good enough at the World Cup that the, that the group wants to improve on. One of them was set pieces, and the U.S. command. And I thought this was the best they've looked on set pieces in a long time, not just because mm-hmm. they scored. But I thought Christian Pulisic actually had some good deliveries. He had a couple of nice set-piece routines as well. Tim Weah gets a shot from outside the box in the first half. Gio Reyna, I thought his deliveries were were 
largely good. Neither was perfect, but both I thought did a good job. And Richards absolutely slams this one home. I thought that timing was was funny. The last thing on this goal, Taylor. I know I've been talking for a long time. Yeah, please. Uh, we're going to talk about Florin Balogun later, believe, mm-hmm. believe me, because I've got a lot to say. But I want to start it now, because the build-up to this corner kick, oh, yeah. Florin Balogun is involved. It's Brendan Aronson finding Florin Balogun. Balogun gets in the box, chops to create a little bit of space, and that's, I, can't, I think, the okay. key. Go ahead. I have to interject here. Yeah, please. I, ca- I cannot tell if this is a full Cruyff turn, because he does this sort of, uses the instep yeah. to go back across him, but he also does it in front of his That's standing foot and That's it's supposed to be behind but it's still very much the fluidity of the Cruyff turn except it's out in front which then makes it seem not nearly as majestic except it was fully majestic because he fully threw off the defenders I loved that little move I also loved Balogun on the evening I thought yeah. he was excellent yes Sorry. yes Continue, yes Joe. to all of that we need a term for that Taylor I don't feel comfortable calling it the Balogun it's too early but you know we'll, we'll give it some thought and maybe there's another old Dutch player that we can we can uh, I believe we to. used to call it I believe whenever it's I think this is what we established. Whenever it's a Cruyff turn, but it doesn't quite come off as the full Cruyff turn, it's like you're not getting full Alec Baldwin. You're getting Billy Baldwin. So I believe uh, we on the Total Soccer Show refer to that move as the Billy Baldwin. Okay. You're welcome. There it is. It's It's been decided. That is what yes. it will be known as from this point forward. I don't um, know how Alec Baldwin got involved, but uh, he did. You know, that's that's just how it goes. Um, but like, <laughs> it's it's a great bit of separation from Balogun. And, and this is one one of the things that makes Balogun special relative to other nines in the pool. There are other good players, like Ricardo Pepe, I think, is is on a very mm-hmm. vertically upward trajectory right now. Yep. But Balogun does one thing that none of the other nines in the pool do, which is create space for himself. Like, Ricardo Pepe needs Sergino Dest to go and, and make that mm-hmm. run and pass into space. If Josh Sargent needs someone to find him in the box. Like, Balogun is the guy. Like, he's the mm-hmm. guy who's good enough on the ball, calm enough, technical enough, skilled enough, to create a little bit of space. And it's not like this crazy, oh my goodness, he's so good, chop it up and put it in the highlight reel moment in this in this uh in the buildup here. But it is notable. Like he does this stuff. He pulls out a moment like this a couple of times a game, and it was ultimately impactful for this goal. Reyna then takes the corner after Balogun, you know, chops, does the mm-hmm. does the Billy Baldwin, takes the, you know, tries to hit a ball towards goal, and, and it looks like a, a mm-hmm. cross from where I was sitting, and it gets blocked, goes out for a corner. Geo takes it and Richard scores. Like Everything just came together in this moment. And it won't always, right? Like these moments won't always lead to goals. But you could see the quality of so many of these individual mm-hmm. players on the goal. And that, for me, was encouraging. Uh, and obviously, Balogun with the the second goal for the United States, we're going to yes. talk plenty about that. Yes. But as long as we're talking about things that Balogun does that I think other players in the pool cannot, especially when it comes to uh, the options at number nine, I agree with you, Ricardo Pepe's on the rise. We'll see what happens when Josh Sargent is back to full fitness. But Balogun, the, the acceleration is obviously quite good. His ability to decelerate uh, yes. sounds like it's not that important, but it's it the is. deceleration combined with the first touch. A couple different times in this game, uh, but especially in the first half, when the U.S. is trying to transition to attack, he is sort of making a run into the channel diagonally so for the sort of vertical ball, and it's hit either behind him or it's hit to, to feet, but he is making that run. And the way he's able to sort of stop more or less on a dime and still control the ball, but then accelerate again with the ball now in possession, it, it's never a heavy touch. It's never popped out way in front. It always seems to be very tight control. And to have the speed to accelerate, but also decelerate, but then control the ball, 
it means that the United States can be so much more effective in transition to attack because he can hold the ball, but he can also carry the ball forward, but he can also link up play really well. And then he can also create space for himself or for his teammates. And so there's a level of fluidity to the way he plays, but also a level of intelligence to the way he plays that is so important at what the United States wants to do. I will leave it to you to describe aspects of the second goal, but I will say that if you want to go back to the buildup, it's Kyle Lahren called for a handball. The U.S. Uh, possesses, but around midfield, they just kind of move it back. We get a replay of, I forget what it was that I thought was important that wasn't important, uh, and then it cuts back to the U.S. in possession, but now it's going all the way back to Matt Turner, who then hoofs it long, but that was what the U.S. did time and time again with Canada, was pulled them forward brought those numbers up because they knew they were going to try to press and then hoofed it long. And in this case, it's Balogun making a vertical run that forces those three center backs all to drop so deep that Turner hits this ball 70 or 80 yards. Balogun isn't even contesting the 50-50, but because the center backs are now dropping back so rapidly, when the header is won, it's basically straight up in the air and it's about 20 yards ahead and that's where the United States are able to to win the ball back and then it's a quick transition to the attack but even those sort of movements for Balogun set up the goal or help facilitate more possession or more ball retention and then obviously the finish is uh, none too shabby either yeah Taylor I I cannot in- endorse every word that just came out of your mouth more strongly <laughs> I love that you noticed Thank you, my friend. And, and brought up specifically how well Balogun slows down like it, it, it's mm-hmm. it's him having such good control of his body yep. like that that's how I would describe it is he's in full control and, and we even saw this uh, saw this against Mexico easy for me to say like that was not a a super strong you know obviously impactful performance from him but there's that sequence that I always come back to always meaning like for the last three days right it's, it's not been a long time but it's on the far sideline Balogun it's a it's a Jedi Robinson throw in Balogun's got yep. Cesar Montez mm-hmm. on his back he controls the ball sees Pulisic making a run in behind hits a, a weak footed left foot ball slipped pass for for Pulisic and then Pulisic goes and, and almost scores like that's body control and then in, in different parts of this game you see him keeping the ball close to him and, and spinning and turning. He, he really likes to sort of spin with the defender on his back or just spin in general to try to create separation. The chop, like the deceleration, the acceleration, all that stuff is there. And it, it was mostly for me the acceleration and then the the calm and control when he gets the ball in the box that stood out on this goal. Is It is, from his perspective, just a fantastic bit of movement, right? You mentioned almost all the buildup that came up to it. It's Giorena driving into space. He waits, plays that perfect slip ball to meet Balogun's like slightly outside in run, like a little diagonal run, I believe behind Scott Kennedy, who was in the middle of Canada's backline, who did not have a good performance. That that goal made it 2-0. And and that wasn't even Balogun's like first or maybe even his most obviously best chance of the game. For as much good stuff as he did, there's a moment in the 28th minute, right around 27-15 I have it, where he finds a good spot in the box, the ball comes in, uh, he has time. I guess he doesn't know this, but he has time and space just to head the ball. Like, like he he can just head the ball in. He has a perfect opportunity, but he decides to chest it down, and that that takes away the advantage that he had. He chests it and then heads it, and it goes over the bar, and he, he maybe should have just gone straight for the header. But, like, he was finding good spots. The runs were there. The timing was good. And, he, and Balogun said after the game, like, a group of us had a chance to talk to him. He said, you know, like the connection with, with Reyna maybe is improving a little bit, but he, he spotlighted the idea that it's early. Like he said, I think Gio and I still have a lot to learn about each other. Like this is a guy that sees the room to improve, sees that, you know, maybe the timing on the runs isn't always there or sees that the service, and this was true in the first game, certainly isn't always there. Like it, Taylor, to be honest, it's scary to me to think about what what this could be for the U.S. Like Balogun is so 
so good. And I, I'm beyond thrilled for him and, and for this team and, and selfishly for myself a little bit that yeah. he performed because like it's been in the tape for Reams all season long, 21 goals. Like it, it finally came together. Finally. It, it, that's that's not the right word here, right? It's it's late for me too, I guess. But like it all came together. In this game against Canada, he looked absolutely filthy in this match. It was the culmination of a lot of hype and a lot of will he, won't he, who's he going to play for? Okay, he's playing for the United States. Let's see what happens now. Is he going to be the solution? We've seen lots of number nines be the solution, and then they weren't. And I think for Balogun, after the first game, I think we're cautiously optimistic. But for him to come in and get a goal, obviously, but then contribute in so many other ways, uh, yeah, made me pretty stoked. Then seeing Ricardo Pepe come on and do a lot of thankless defensive work and running and pressing, uh, I think also showed that there's depth in that spot. Uh, but to stick with that goal for a second, the second goal for the United States, I also want to spotlight a couple of the things after that center back uh, heads it. it might, that might be Kennedy as well. Uh, that might be Alistair Johnson. Either way, it's a weak header. And it goes to Gio Reyna, who has a really nice direction header to Tim Weah. This was a thing I noticed from, from Gio Reyna many times in this game is either directional headers into the feet of his teammates or into space for them to run onto or just little flicks little lobs little little just one touch passes that didn't seem like they should come off there are moments like the one that you talked about with Balagun, where it's just sort of like weak like opposite foot as he does it while he's off balance and falling over but he hits it 20 yards to a person who's now wide open and play resumes so that directional header to Wea starts the move but then not just sitting there enjoying the header he had he then continues the run where if people haven't seen this goal or watched it from this point go back and watch this the header from tim way is what breaks this open yes. to me it's a great first touch from reyna off of the header but for all the world it looks like way is taking this back towards the u.s goal or he's going to kind of receive it and turn outside or he's going to lay it off to somebody backwards and instead he hits a reverse header that's forward and diagonal into the path of Gio Reyna but it completely wrong foots almost the entire Canadian team Reyna then has the ability to take that touch which is maybe a little heavy it felt heavy in the moment but because I think Canada were so thrown off nobody can close and by the time they do he's looking off to the left it is a no look Travella by by the six times I rewatched it I'm very confident that he is no looking hitting with the outside of his right foot but it's perfect timing for Balogun, who holds his run, then gets around Kennedy and has the kind of swim move to gain leverage. But then he just crushes that ball. To your point earlier, where he maybe has too much time to think and takes that extra touch here, there's no extra touch needed. It's just get into the position, latch onto it, and finish strongly. And that's exactly what he did. But it's Balogun finishing expertly and making a smart run, but it's great passing and moving from Giorena. It's good, uh, nice awareness and uh, technical ability from Tim Weah, but it's also the U.S. sort of using Canada's defensive game plan against them. And so in a lot of ways, this is a goal that says very positive things about the United States. Uh, Joe, we're going to continue to say very positive things about the United States. First, one more break, then we shall return. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willingly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back. We were just praising Florin Balogun and Gio Reyna for their roles in the second goal. We've praised a few individuals. We'll praise a few more. But I'm going to start with a person who did not play in this game, but did a lot of the coaching or all the coaching, I should say. BJ Callahan uh, on the sidelines, I think... I'm going to run it through real fast, Joe. Uh, got his lineup right. We weren't sure what he was going to do. I think we both thought Luca De La Torre would start, yep. uh, if memory serves. Yep. David Goss thinking it might be Johnny. But instead, it's Brendan Aronson. I thought that ended up making a lot of sense. I was cautiously optimistic when I saw Brendan Aronson in there, but I thought he didn't didn't stand out in a bad way and I think facilitated good attacking play and did the defensive work we talked about. Uh, I think Joe Scally was, as you said, kind of a no-brainer, but backed it up and did well. But then Walker Zimmerman coming back, uh, recently returning from injury, but 
that defensive pairing looked lights out with him and Chris Richards. So I think the starting 11 is right. I think how alert the U.S. was on defense, especially to the threat posed by Alfonso Davies, not just 1v1, but on those sort of low cutbacks that he likes. Jedi Robinson there to sweep up every time. But then as Canada made a number of attacking changes, the U.S. pressed into that one change at halftime with Gio Reyna coming off. But Canada really start bringing on the attackers, changing the shape, trying to take the game to the United States. And I think they start to. And then I think the U.S. make some changes of their own. They're in the 4-2-3-1 to start the second half. But then when Austin Trusty comes on, they're into a back five with Tim Weah as a right wing back, which we've seen him do this season. Uh, and I thought that was a change that I was nervous about because it felt like the, the U S could have maybe gone for one more and made it three nil. But then with how little Canada were able to create and how few ideas they seem to have once the U S went into that kind of five, four, one shell, I, I got to give credit where credit's due. And then the final little thing that I thought was really interesting as the game is ending, as we're into like the 90 plus fifth minute or whatever it was, they cut to the U S sideline as everybody's getting ready to celebrate and Callahan is walking down and he, I don't think it was like a deliberate thing. I think it just happened to be who was next in line. It's uh, Zendejas. And you can see Callahan very clearly explaining to him like, hey, I'm really sorry I couldn't get you in today. Uh, like, And like you could see him sort of, and Zendejas like, I know, I know, it's all good, it's all good. But even just those moments that like when you're about to win, you're taking time to explain to a person why they didn't get playing time. Like, I think that's that's what you need if you want that positivity to continue on in the program. So I don't know what's next for BJ Callahan, but I think certainly only helped his coaching resume uh, with these two these two wins in the Nations League. Yeah, that's that's very true. And I'm, I'm not sure BJ Callahan knows what's next for BJ Callahan. <laughs> yeah, I, right? I didn't expect us to ever really be talking about BJ Callahan. Me neither, um, but it's deserved. But it, it sounds like he's interested in staying on with Craig Berhalter for another cycle. We'll see if that actually comes to pass. Yeah, I mean, Taylor, again, like I, I agree. The tactical work from the U.S. and the execution in the various shapes, the 4-3-3 to start the game, the 4-2-3-1 to start the second half. The lineup changes in in both of those moments, first half and second half, from last game to this game, from first half to second half. The back five to sort of see out the game. Uh, it all worked, right? And and I think a lot of the credit for that should go to the players, but Callahan also deserves credit, right? Like he, I, I actually, I'll be honest, I don't I don't really know how much influence he has on the team, and and I I think it is possible that Greg Baralter is is sending some texts. Yeah. I, I have no information on that whatsoever. Yeah. And I was told that Greg Baralter was not at this game, that he left the same day of the press conference on Thursday, has not still met with any of the players after he's been reappointed manager, hasn't met with the staff, you know, that kind of stuff, at least that I know of, certainly on the player side. So it, it's, it's an interesting time, certainly for Callahan. But, I mean, it worked, right? Regardless of where the ideas are coming from, it absolutely worked. And, Taylor, I love... That Zendejas bit, because that's, that's something I, I couldn't see, obviously, from, from the press box. I, I think it speaks to the culture, right? Like, this is something that gets banged on over and over and over again. Like, it gets talked about a lot by players and coaching members and, and members of the staff sort of outside the, the technical group. Like, it seems like these people like each other. Like, yeah. Yeah, USMNT does. Twitter won't, won't believe it, right? And, nope. and no matter what we say, they sort of won't buy it. But... That's probably my single biggest takeaway other than like how darn fun this team is to watch from being around this group for five or so days now is like even unprompted. These people are talking about how, how they like to hang out. Like they just won't shut up about it, man. It, it's it's absolutely unreal. I, I've never really seen anything like this in, in a time around any team, like club level, national team level, whatever it is. You've got BJ Callahan in the press conference after the game talking about, uh, uh, answering a question about Florent Balogun and sort of his integration into the group. 
And Callahan said, you know, I think he, he sort of mentioned about Valiant's talent and all that obvious stuff, but he also mentioned, you know, he's a believer in something very obvious, which is that players perform at their best when they're most comfortable and they feel like, you know, like they're a part of something, they have something to believe in, all that stuff. That's a rough paraphrase, but you get the idea. He said that and talked about his group. Like he's like, you know, what what happens in the other 22 hours of the day when you're not training or getting ready for training has a real impact. And by all accounts, like even with some of the Gio Reyna nonsense that happened at the World Cup, Christian Pulisic's talking about how that's all in the past and like, you know, they're they're not worried about that stuff anymore. You've got that as the one possible blip and everybody's just fine. Yeah. Like it, yeah. it is impressive to see this group be as tight-knit as they are. And, and I don't know if it'll last forever, not to be a pessimist. Like there are going to be tough decisions that have to be made about playing time for this group moving mm -hmm. forward and for different members of the group. And, and there will be tough roster decisions and there will be mistakes made on, on both of those things by Greg Berhalter. But, like, yeah, I do think the, the camaraderie and the chemistry in this group has some part to play in the success that they've had over the last couple of games. I don't want to relitigate everything that happened with Gio Reyna at the last World Cup. There's not a but coming here where I'm then about to do all of that. What I will say, though, is everything I saw from him in that tournament just made me think that he was a player who was frustrated by his lack of involvement or perceived lack of involvement and shut down a little bit. And I contrast that with this game where he is out injured in the second half, but there's a moment when Luca De La Torre chases down a loose ball that sort of played in his vicinity, but then he realizes I can keep this in play and does so, carries it forward, plays a ball in behind, and I think it ends up getting collected by Canada and cleared for a U.S. throw. But it's really good work from Luca De La Torre, and you cut to BJ Callahan on the sidelines, you know, like doing some instructing. But behind him is Gio Reyna, and you can see Gio Reyna say, like, Luca, Luca, good stuff, man, good stuff. And there's just, like, positivity from Gio Reyna that I don't think was there. At the end of the game, he's up directing and on the sidelines, the way we saw Ronaldo in the Euros, uh, very much Gio Reyna kind of pointing and telling people what they need to do. It, like I think a happy Gio Reyna who feels motivated and up for it. I mean, we saw it tonight. He's able to evade pressure with one touch of the ball or with 10 touches of the ball. Uh, I think he's really press resistant in that way. Joe, I'm picking up words from you. Uh, hyphenated words at that. Uh, hey. But And so I think like there's, there's that element to his game that I think we didn't see in the World Cup for whatever reason. Uh, but to see what he can do and the relationship he can build with certain players like Balogun makes me incredibly excited. And then the other, again, little thing that uh, that I thought was was fascinating, on the first corner, uh, that he hits it to the same spot, but obviously it doesn't end up being a goal. Before he takes it, he turns and looks back and looks to where the, the U.S. would be defending. And they have only one defender back deep, and Canada are sending another attacker forward. I think it's Alfonso Davies is being sent up, up top. So it's a 2v1, and they have speed. And it's Giorena who, as he's getting the ball to take the corner holds the ball and points and points and points until Brendan Aronson drops deep. And I don't think that it was like Gio Reyna noticed that and nobody else would have. I'm sure eventually somebody would have said it, but I love that as Gio Reyna is getting ready to take an attacking set piece, he is also aware of what the U.S. needs to be doing defensively to nullify the counterattacking threat that was there. And that was a big part of how Canada, I think, wanted to get into the attack. So moments like that from Gio Reyna, the alertness, the awareness, but then the ability and a little, just a little bit of humor. He has a nice, he clearly said something to Balogun about like good, good run or good ball or like, there we go or something. Cause they had a nice laugh after Balogun's goal. Uh, I thought a great performance from Gio Reyna. One of the best I've seen from him, certainly in a U.S. shirt. Yeah. And, and I hope people aren't making a drinking game out of every time I say in the press conference and push up my uh, glasses like a nerd. They're not, but uh, <laughs> you, yeah, <laughs> you were right. there. It's kind of expected. They're probably not. Um, <laughs> You know, BJ Callahan mentioned after the game that he, he said, this is a direct quote, we've challenged Gio to do more work off the ball 
and he's absolutely mm-hmm. risen to the occasion. Yep. I think that is a fair summary of, of Gio's window. Again, like he did a lot of good stuff in this game. Maybe maybe this is a, a byproduct of me being high, like very high on his abilities as a player. I don't think this was his best performance. He did a lot of good stuff, and the assist is excellent. I still think there's a lot of room for him to be more influential and be sort of the possession hub mm. for this team. Maybe maybe on the rewatch, that will stand out in a slightly different way, and I'm curious to see what that looks like. But setting all that aside, one thing is very obvious to me, and it's exactly what Callahan said. Like He is doing more work off the ball. It's a yep. massive difference, obviously, yep. obviously, from what we saw at the World Cup in limited minutes, but even from before that. Like he looks motivated and he is not still not the most mobile guy. Like he kind of lumbers around and maybe looks like he yeah. hasn't fully grown into his frame yet. Pepe's kind of the same way as some of these younger guys. But like the effort is night and yeah. day from where it's been. And, and for a player as talented and as technical as Gio Reyna, I'm not super worried about like him maybe not being as influential on the attacking side right now. I think there's more room for him to grow on that, but I think the tools are there. Like I've always been more yeah. worried about the durability, which is still a massive concern given that he comes off 45 minutes yeah. into this game, but the durability and the motivation, like the, the energy, the effort, it's never really been there at any age level for him. And in maybe this summer after the world cup, after a lot of time to think about what happened and how he conducted himself, like maybe we're seeing him as an individual turn a page i agree one million percent uh that's that's how strongly i ooh. agree one I, I agree one trillion percent taylor ooh. one trillion you agree google, with your own google, statement. Percent. Google, google google you agree with suck your own it. statement one trillion percent yep suck on that okay just want to make sure yep just want to make sure you heard me um but because i hadn't really thought about the defensive i noticed him being in the right shape in the right position clogging passing lanes and that was a nice thing what i hadn't really connected is you're you're dead on there were so many times in the past that I've been like, Gio, get back. What are you doing? And and so often it's because he is remonstrating with the official or being frustrated that a pass didn't come or being frustrated that the shot wasn't where he wanted it to be. And he'll take those extra couple seconds to just be in his feelings and head down and sort of frustrated hands up. And a thing that I, I, I think players are taught from a very young age is that if you have that attacking opportunity and it doesn't come off, your job is to get back into your shape. So if you're a defender, you got to haul back and make sure you're in, in your space where you need to be. And then you can worry about the missed opportunity. But if you spend your time sort of staying up top, even if you sprint back, there's always that opportunity for the opposition because you're not sort of locked in. And I say that to say that by contrast, Giorena, I felt like was in the right position almost every time. I don't feel like I saw nearly as much of the frustrated hands up in the air as we've seen in the past a few times he has a word with somebody after the play is done but i think that's just kind of soccer and communication but i love the way he was working off the ball and then scrapping for 50 50s still trying to create still being silky at times it just felt like a smart performance and a technical performance uh in both sides of the ball i look forward to hearing uh what you discover or uh, change in your opinion or uh, back in your opinion in, in your rewatch, Joe. Uh, but while we're talking about individuals, we've talked about Chris Richards a little bit. We've talked about Gio Reyna and Balogun a little bit. Whom else should we be discussing? I want to give some credit to Yunus Musa for not just his performance tonight, but his performance in the semifinal as well against Mexico. The U.S. came into this camp without Tyler Adams, and, and we talked about two possible solutions for Adams not being around. The first was a McKenny musa double pivot, which we saw shades of in the first game. Obviously, we didn't see that at all tonight against Canada because McKenny was suspended with a red card. But we talked about like a sort of a hard and fast double pivot where you know, he's always got cover in McKenny. That's how I imagined it anyway. And we also talked about them opting for Johnny Cardoso as a, a single pivot and having Musa and McKenny as the two eights. 
which would be very similar roles for those two players, even if the, the profile of the number six is a little different behind them. We didn't really see either of those things fully. We saw, instead, Yunus Musa, what is he, 20 years old? It's right around there, he looks like a, an absolute man of 35, but he, he's I a kid I have the roster in still. front of me. I Thank can you. tell you that he is 20 years old, turns 21 in late November. There you go. So he is he's 20 years old, and he is tossed into the role for most of the time, certainly defensively throughout both, game, both games, and, and mostly as a single pivot. And I thought he was excellent within that context. Was he perfect in terms of like nailing every action? No, but he was fairly sharp with his defensive reads. I thought he did well shielding the ball in difficult moments. He, he has a moment in the 21st minute where he's under pressure and he shields the ball from a, an opposing player and draws a foul, and that sort of gives the U.S. a second to breathe. He has lots of those little moments, a, a good tactical foul against Mexico in the first game, some good switches in terms of, of where the ball is being played on the field. Uh, he was solid, like to the point where we talk all the time uh, about when Adams and Musa McKenney and Reyna are all available, like who sits, who plays, how do you get you know Reyna, Way, and Pulisic on the field together? I'm not saying that this is the best option. I'm not saying that I'm fully convinced about this as an idea just yet. But in a game where the U.S. is expected to control play, I am intrigued, much more so than I was before, to see Yunus Musa play as the six and to have Tyler Adams sit on the bench. Again, I don't know that that's the right thing to do, and I'm not sure we saw quite enough from Musa to feel great about that. But I thought he was pretty darn good for a guy that doesn't play that spot, plays half his minutes on the wing at club level, and is still 20 years old. Agreed. Uh, I think you'll find on the rewatch, as seems to be the case with Musa when he's doing that sort of defensive job, there's going to be like three to four moments a game that are not great, yeah. and it's how much you get punished for those. So, for example, against Mexico, there's the one where Matt Turner plays to him. Turner probably shouldn't play that ball in. It's kind of under hit. It is kind of a hospital ball. But still, Musa is standing there and doesn't, doesn't check his shoulder. It loses that ball. Easily could have been a goal if the attacker weren't offside who received uh, the kind of one ball. In this game, in the opening minutes, he has one where he tries to turn under pressure at midfield and loses the ball. And if Canada are a little bit more efficient in their attack that could have been a bigger problem. And there's just a couple of those from him where he is going to try to turn or just try to do a little bit too much uh, under pressure. And sometimes it comes off and sometimes it doesn't. But certain opponents are going to make you pay for that one. And that would be my only concern about him in that role. And then the only other side of that would be it's when Luca De La Torre comes on twice some of that sort of electric connection or that electric awareness breaks down. So whereas when Musa would step out on the first half, Reyna would like move inside a little bit, move a little bit deeper, or Brendan Aronson would. Uh, in, in this case, I think it's Luca De La Torre is slow to cover and Musa steps and a gap opens up and Canada play right through it. And so a Canada team that I don't think looked particularly effective in their attack in this game still able to kind of find those gaps and 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 spot those opportunities, it, it ends up leading to a, a good Canadian shot. I think there are moments there where he just doesn't have the experience or doesn't have that sort of ability to communicate or know when a person is maybe slacking off and needs to uh, just, you know, get in their ear a little bit. And I think that comes with time. I think that comes with more experience. But those are my only sort of negative things to say about what was otherwise, I felt like a, a very comprehensively good job from Yunus Musa, especially with his defensive cover. Again, helping nullify Alfonso Davies, helping shut down Tasia Buchanan at times, just making it so that even when Alfonso Davies would get crosses in, they were always from a different angle than he wanted them to be. And when they were having people there to cover it up, 
I, I just felt like Yunus Musa, especially on the defensive side, uh, had himself quite a game. Yeah, yeah. And Taylor, I, I appreciate that you brought in some of the the moments that Musa wasn't perfect in, right? And and I, I think you probably caught a few more of those than I did. Like, there are absolutely going to be those moments, and it's a process, right? And I, I think there's still a lot of room for him to improve at that spot. And and he said earlier this week, I don't remember which media availability it was. Maybe it was on CBS. I think it was on, on Afternoon Footy. He said, like, the number eight is still kind of his spot, right? Even though we saw him as a six kind of twice in this camp. The number eight where he can go forward, he can progress the ball. That's where he feels most comfortable. He has room to improve in, in both the eight role and the six role. He's got a lot that can still be added to his game. But, man, I, I liked so much of what I saw from him in this match, and, and I liked a lot of what we've seen from him throughout his career. A couple of other players quickly to highlight that I thought deserve some credit from this match. Tim Weah. If you're going to say Tim Weah, yeah, then <laughs> that's amazing timing. Yep. Uh, we don't need to be quick about this one because okay, I've got some thoughts on Tim Weah, who I think might be my favorite player in the pool. He's so fun, man. He's so consistent with the national team. Yep. I mean, it, it, it's night and day from his club team, right, yep. where his position with the U.S. is further forward. He seems like, you know, he, he gets along with a lot of these guys a little bit better. Not that he, he doesn't get along with the group in, in Lille, but, like, there's just something different about this version of Tim Way. He's direct, he's incisive, he's purposeful, he's sharp. And he wasn't perfect in this game either. Like, there's moments where uh, maybe he's riding a little too high. Like, he has a great flick to Gio Reyna, like a nice little soul roll, maybe backwards soul roll. It's hard to mm, say. Yeah. To Gio in the third minute. And then three minutes later, it's like he is feeling himself maybe a little too much, and he just like yep. back heels it into midfield to no one. Yep. And so there are a few of those moments where it's like a, a, a three-point shooter heat check, those those kind of things. But, man, he's involved in the buildup to the second goal with with some of those uh, actions with Gio. Like yeah. He's, he's uh, the taking header, up, man. That yeah, header. the header it's is so sharp, good. and you called that out earlier really well. He's got a good shot in the 43rd minute off of a, a Christian Pulisic design set piece free kick yep. moment. Like, he wasn't flawless. None of these players were, but he was really, really good tonight. I, I enjoy Tim Weah for the national team virtually every time I see him to the point where I, until something changes, and maybe that's something with Gio Reyna or maybe that's something with Tim Weah where he, he's not quite in the same level of form, like, he's got to be the guy on the right wing. He has been, and he mm -hmm. has to continue to be regardless of what happens with this club. Like, he can score zero goals, he can be on the bench, he can be playing right wing back, like the form for Tim Weah, and really, it seems like for all of these players with their clubs, has not mattered whatsoever in this window. It could be Musa playing on the wing, it could be Polistic not playing at all, it could be Dest being on an island off the coast of Italy because he has nothing to do with Milan. Like, all of these players, it was a brutal club season for them, and they come in and boss CONCACAF. Like, Weah was totally up for it tonight, he was up for it against Mexico. Mm -hmm. Just so much fun. Absolutely. And and certainly the speed is a part of that fun. Uh, there's the moment in the 11th minute, it's a vertical ball for Pulisic in the channel, and he kind of receives it or maybe the half space and then he carries it a little bit wider, has a defender on his back. And then Tim Way, like straight up the road runner, just comes flying past him and it's a layoff. He takes a touch inside. He's gotten very good at that touch before the cross or touch before the shot. And then he pings one in and it's the one that kind of bounces around the six and is eventually cleared. But it's an overlap where he gets on his horse about 30 yards behind where Pulisic is when he's holding the ball up and covers that distance and then gets there to help in the attack. I, I think that's just one small moment of what I thought was a very strong attacking game from him to the extent that I felt like it was just creating huge problems for Canada and they were struggling for how to deal with him without double teaming or taking players off of other players who could then create. Uh, on the defensive side, the other thing that I wanted to spotlight with both Wea and Balogun, there were times when it did look 
I don't think this was the case, but there were times when it looked like the U.S. was in a 442 because Wea and Balogun were stepping so high. And both of them do such a good job of not getting cut out on on those uh, sort of possession deep from Canada. There's the one moment when I think Borhan, I can't remember if it's a Cruyff turn or if it's just a, a chop that that uh, Balogun bites on. I don't really begrudge him for that because that is a risky maneuver for a goalkeeper. That one aside, I don't remember a time that Canada ever like moved it from the left center back to the goalkeeper and then we're able to move it back to the left center back. I think Wea and Balogun do a great job in tandem of cutting off options and really forcing Canada into either hoofing it long or playing into touch or playing into areas where they don't want to be and then hoofing it long. And that level of pressing, but the consistency of that pressing, I think was a huge difference maker. So uh, again, Wea we see contributing in the attack, but also yeah. contributing uh, on the defensive side as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a good call out from you, Taylor. And one that I, I'd forgotten about, but did think about during the game is, how sharp and aggressive those players are on the front line with their pressing. And Polisic is probably the spottiest presser of the three of Balogun, and Weah and, yeah, and Polisic, which is the go-to starting front three, by the way, for the foreseeable future for the U.S. Yep. And, until something major changes. Like Balogun, he's got that moment where you know, he's, he's pressing Boyan and Boyan gets away from him. But like you know, there, there's lots of those little sequences where you can see the work rate is so real with those players. Like yeah, they're skilled in the attack and. And Balogun and Pulisic maybe a little bit more so than Weah in terms of pure 1v1 ability or, or pure goal creation, even though Weah did a good job of that in, in both of these games. But, like, they're they're workers. Like, they're willing to work. They're willing to run. And that gives the U.S. another dimension. Like, it, it's not them having to cover for a player that doesn't feel like doing the dirty work. No, it seems like, now even including Gio Reyna, even if he's not fantastic at winning those duels defensively like it's it seems like everybody is rowing in the same direction on mm -hmm. that front which is yeah is massive for a team that now in the u.s actually has some quality to beat you with the ball Dude. even though that's still developing they have quality there they have quality in transition maybe the set piece thing is going to be real now time will tell and the defensive stuff too it's all it's all kind of scary to be honest there have been times when i have been like overly excited to be a U.S. fan. Obviously, the 2002 World Cup is the start of that. I don't really remember 94. I'm assuming some people thought like, here we go, we're doing it in 94. I think plenty of people thought that in 2002. And in the Conf uh, Confederations Cup in 2009, there's that moment of like, okay, is this it? This is the most I've ever felt like, okay, this is the U.S. building towards something. Maybe yeah. they're not winning a World Cup in my lifetime. I still think they will. Uh, but to see... The quality of these two performances, caveats aside, I can't get over how likable this team is, uh, even with the interim to the interim coach in charge and the old coach coming back. I just still think there's so many enjoyable players in this team from a personality standpoint, certainly, but then also from a gameplay standpoint and how hard they work, but how good they are on the ball and how much depth there is. If you run it through real fast, as you said, that front three, I think pretty much picks itself. Uh, and then you've got Ricardo Pepe. I agree with you again. I think his stock is increasing. I think he's had a good season. I think he's going to get a move and hopefully have an even better season. So you're going to have uh, a, a like an obvious depth option at your number nine. The midfields, we're already talking about how it can maybe be overcrowded if you have to pick between three of Musa, McKinney, Adams, and now Reyna. Looking at the defense for a moment, obviously Matt Turner has cemented the number one spot. Dest is your right back. Jedi is your left back. Now we know we have depth at right back. We thought we did before, but Scally comes in and shuts down Alfonso Davies. I'm good with it. Uh, and then at center back, see, uh, uh, Zimmerman starts this one, obviously, and I thought 
did fine, did exactly what I expect to see from Walker Zimmerman. But Chris Richards is lights out in both of these games. Miles Robinson has an excellent game against Mexico. So you have depth options there at center back and obviously a potential starting tandem in Richards and Robinson that I wouldn't mind seeing. So it feels like we're back to like, who is our backup left back is sort of my biggest concern right now amongst other things. But it just feels like a very, very positive time to be a U.S. fan. And I hope that momentum will continue. Yeah. Retweet all that stuff. Like it, it is, th- this team's just fun to watch. Yep. Right. Like I was talking about that. With I can't a few remember a team earlier today. Fun. Yeah. I like it, it's kind of a shame that so many people get so wrapped up and make this Greg Berhalter stuff, their entire personality. It seems like online at least. And and they get so angry and, and bent up in knots about that stuff. It's okay, by the way, not to like the Berhalter appointment. It's okay to criticize that and it's okay to criticize the process or at least what we know of it like all that stuff's fine i'm not telling people not to do that and i i, I would fall into those camps in several different ways but man like yeah, I, I would just say i wouldn't say that you were like overly joyed i read your backfield piece and it was definitely very tongue-in-cheek a few different times about like interesting that he's comparing himself to himself in this situation yeah, some, or being compared to himself we'll some, talk about that but some yeah weirdness in there for mm-hmm. sure i just hope that there's enough people out there that that can avoid some of that in, insane discourse and just enjoy this team because this team is so much fun to watch right now. Objectively, like if you just took off the the white jerseys tonight and put on like some random kit from the 1950s or whatever it is and made it blank, no logo, whatever, and told any soccer fan to sit down and watch, I think they would have enjoyed their last two hours, right? Like this oh, team yeah. is is that much fun to watch. There's so much talent. That said, I think... Mexico was bad, and we, this is how you started, Taylor, and I want to bring us yeah. some some mm-hmm. grounding in reality. Mexico was bad. Canada was underwhelming in, in certain ways tonight, uh, and, and I think there are still very real questions about depth, even though credit to the U.S., they handled missing four starters in this game mm-hmm. exceptionally well. There is so much room for them still to improve, and I don't know that that has to be a negative, but it is something to think about, right? There will be real tests. The Copa America next summer will be a real test that I am now stoked for this team mm-hmm. has tons of fun. There's room to improve. There's room to grow. There's room for for folks of us on, on the outside to sort of pinpoint what those things are, and we'll do more of that between now and next summer and between then and the World Cup. But, man, it, it has been a fun couple of games to be someone in and around the U.S. men's national team to watch this team play. Yeah. I mean, if they continue to play this style at this level, this collectively and comprehensively, it's a team that I expect to make a run in the Copa America. And it wouldn't be a like, well, you know, if things align and you get the right points here and maybe we could spring a surprise, I will go into that tournament having expectations. And not that we're going to beat Brazil or Argentina or beat them easily or anything like that, but just that I I think it will be a U.S. team that can go in and, and play and take the game to teams that in the past they would have sat deeper on or been scared of or not known how to deal with or put... Benny Failhaber as a defensive midfielder and just fingers crossed, hoped it would work. Uh, it did not work against Brazil. Shocking, shocker of all shocks. Uh, so it just feels like a tournament now that there's expectation for and there's hype for. And at the same time, you're right that Canada have closed the gap and gotten better and have probably the best player in CONCACAF or one of the best players in CONCACAF, certainly, and, and more on the way. And, and Mexico uh, will obviously eventually turn the ship around, but it's not going to happen quickly or particularly quickly in my mind. So it does feel like we're in a unique position in CONCACAF of the U.S. It seems to me pretty clearly at the top right now, as uncomfortable as that makes me. Now, the big question then becomes, uh, 
what happens when Greg Berhalter comes back. Uh, we know now that he is not going to be in charge of the U.S. at the Gold Cup. So I guess we're not saying goodbye to B.J. Callahan. We'll be saying goodbye to him after the Gold Cup when Berhalter comes in for the friendlies in October, I believe, September. against Ghana and Germany. Be September, September friendlies as well. No, yep. Thank you. Okay, cool. Uh, but... We do have Greg Berhalter now officially back. I think that was made official when we were recording. We were recording our last review, Joe. In the interim, you've been in the press conference, as you said. You've learned a little Shot. bit more about the process, uh, and yeah, Joe. Let's talk more about your press conference uh, situations. <laughs> uh, was was the Gio Reyna issue the first question? Yes. And was how many times was he asked about Gio Reyna in some form? I three maybe it was. Yeah, it was the I first figured. question. Uh, and Baralta, I think, handled it fairly well. Like, he admitted there's work to do, right? Like, this is something that's going to be important to the national team. Gio Reyna is, is a very, very talented player. Baralta knows that there are discussions that need to be had and that there's some restoration there that needs to happen. But I, I thought that was fairly encouraging, like, that, that he straight up admitted that. I think he absolutely knew that that was going to be a talking point, and he went out there and said it. Like, he has an obligation to coach Gio Reyna just like he coaches everybody else. Like, he is a very talented player. That was something very clear that Baralter knew was coming and, and has thought about since then. I don't think they've they met. You know, Baralter said they hadn't sat down and talked with Gio yet. The same went for Ricardo Pepe and, and maybe a couple other players, even though he did over the last few months, maybe even before some of this interview process, go and, and watch some games with these guys and, and meet up with some of the European players. That didn't happen with Gio Reyna. So it will continue to be a talking point. It has been a hot-button topic for a lot of folks here covering the team. No one, as far as I'm aware, has been able to talk to Giorena. He's not being made available for any media uh, at any point during the last couple of weeks. But you know, he is he's going to be a, a, a hot-button topic over the next few months. Yeah. Uh, two things I want to note. Uh, maybe I am incorrect in this, uh, but if anybody feels like that is not great, that he hasn't reached out, that there hasn't been any level of communication or that they haven't yet sort of fully put that behind them, Berhalter and Gio Reyna, I would say that there was a an investigation with legal like backing to it, that there are legal implications to it. And I'm going to guess that any lawyer, any counsel would have advised, do not speak to the other party because that's how that works. You don't speak to them unless you're in court. And even then, you don't speak to them. The lawyers do. Your representatives do. So I'm going to guess that is at least partially why the two haven't like fully spoken and mended fences. I'll also say I appreciate that answer from Greg Berhalter, that it would have been fairly easy to say, Oh, you know, it's under the bridge, water under the bridge. We're, we're doing well. Gino's a great, Gino's a great guy. We got a great relationship. I've known his parents for forever. We're moving on. And that can easily be found to not be true. It can easily be contradicted. And it just isn't the reality of the situation. So though it's a little bit more awkward and a little bit more difficult to acknowledge that he and Matt Crocker have to try to rebuild the relationship that we know will be important moving forward. Those are his words. Uh, I, I think it's still, I don't know, to his credit that, that he owns that and sort of, I think, starts from a foundation of, yeah, there's work to be done and we got to figure things out, but we're going to do it because it's important. So I don't, mind that so much i did want to ask you joe uh how much talking was Gio Reyna doing this week either before or after uh the mexico game uh zero as far as i'm aware so i, mm -hmm. I wasn't with the team from the start of this week i got into vegas on wednesday but from what i know he he's not been available to chat with anybody for the last couple of weeks were there any other players 
similarly uh, not available for conversation? Uh, I, or overtly not available? No, not not that I'm yeah, aware of. I, where are you feels, going with this? I mean, I mean that connect some dots there. That right, I feel okay. like either he has been told by his parents or his agent or whomever don't talk, or he's been told by U.S. Soccer we're not going to be doing any press conferences for a little while. Uh, either way. Not sure that's the worst idea. Uh, am very interested to hear what he does say when he is uh, talking publicly. Maybe when he's back with Dortmund, who knows? Uh, but that is one that I think will be pretty fascinating because, yes, uh, not knowing what's going on with Geo and just having to assume things uh, could be interesting. Also could be interesting is learning more about the interview process. Uh, we learned from uh, Crocker that what they did multiple rounds of interviews and then a 10 hour <laughs> interview that featured different tasks, conversations and tasks. Yeah. It, there's a part of me that just feels like that was just them playing FIFA for 10 hours. Like they just got to kind of got zoned Oh, dude, in. you went like, all yeah, out attacking tests. four, three, three, dude, that's tight. <laughs> that's that's totally what we do. I love that, man. Yeah. But the thing that I alluded to previously that you definitely uh, were tongue in cheek for was Crocker mentioned that Burhalter, uh, quote unquote, pretty much set the data model during the previous World Cup cycle, which was a curious note to add. I'm now quoting you directly, Joe, which was a curious note to add while the Federation attempts to convince the public that Burhalter was the best possible candidate for the job. By using at least some of Burhalter's time with the U.S. as a measuring stick, there's little surprise that Burhalter measured up to his own stick. Yeah, that was that was an interesting thing to say for Matt Crocker. Uh, again, I think we'll maybe learn more about the interview process as we go. But thus far, Joe, I, I don't feel like we have a ton of clarity on who else no. was chatted with or to what level they were uh, they were maybe chatted about. Uh, it seems like Jesse Marsh was in there, though, when he rules himself out or announces that he's not involved, then it's pretty much Berhalter yeah. right away. Yeah. So maybe that was the other kind of like finalist. I'm not sure, but Marsh probably involved in there. Short of that, Joe, have we heard anything else about the interview process or anything else you want to mention? On the as far as the timeline goes in, in a finalist, given the timeline and given when that tweet from Ron Waxman, Jesse Marsh's agent, came out on Thursday evening, and the fact that Paul Tenorio and Pablo Mauer broke the news directly after that, maybe two hours after uh, that. The man who you had talking is what Anyewu called him in the pre-match when they nice. were asking about the story. Nice. Hey, that, <laughs> yes. that dude? Yeah, the, yeah. yeah him. Yeah. That, the newsbreaker yeah. guy. Um, yeah. That's that's epic. I love that. I didn't Put know some that. respect uh, on Paul Tenorio's <laughs> name. Yeah, Paul did a, a fantastic job with all of this stuff. It's been a, a busy week for him, certainly. But well, like, let's not put too much respect yeah, on Yeah, all right. Calm down, Joe. Get it together. Tighten up. Um, but I do think Marsh was a finalist. Like I would be very surprised. Jesse Marsh, I think, was, was probably the other guy that was this far along in the process. I don't know that for sure, but that is my educated and somewhat informed guess. Uh, it, it seems like Marsh was that guy, and it seems like Patrick Vieira, according to reporting from ESPN, was interested. So how far along Vieira made it in the process, I don't know. But it, it doesn't seem like U.S. soccer had a lot of success, either because they didn't go knocking or because the door wasn't answered. It doesn't seem like they had a lot of success going after high-profile names that people wanted, right? Think about Jose Mourinho or think about Luis Enrique as just two examples. Enrique, this morning, by the way, linked to PSG. So I, I know, given the choice between PSG and the U.S. men's national team, what most high-profile managers would pick. And as fun as the U.S. is and as miserable yeah, as PSG seems, I don't know if that's a good choice. I still think it is PSG, whether <laughs> it's a good choice or not, Taylor. That is a fair point. I think it's PSG. So it seems like Vieira, Marsh, Peralta, like, that was the tier of managers. Maybe guys that have had some European experience, have never truly thrived in a, a major European league, people that have lost their jobs recently. Like those were the, the tier of people that were in 
play for the U.S. men's national team. And, and by the way, I, I know we're not really talking about was Peralta the right call or not. I do think people are, are again, totally within their right to say this is not who I would have picked and this is an underwhelming hire by U.S. soccer. I, I also just want to be clear. I don't think we have any evidence to say that it is obvious that Patrick Vieira or Jesse Marsh is a better coach than Greg Berhalter. You can think that, and, and I think you can make an argument for both of them, but I think you can just as easily make the argument for Berhalter. So, I don't know. It, it is. Go ahead. If you're making, put it this way, I agree with you. If you're making the argument for them, like, there it is, is that you are having to make an argument right. it's for not them. Obvious. And, it's not and obvious. And in contrast, yeah, exactly. And there are going to be drawbacks or negatives yes. to both of them as candidates yes. including the fact that they're unknown at international level that that like you can't sort of overlook and i think the only reason why you would is because you are so vehemently against greg burhalter as the u.s manager uh but i agree with you joe i don't think there was one clear candidate who i was like yep that guy for sure Maybe unless Pep did actually throw his hat right, in the ring. Right, and, and that would have been so much more fun and exciting, and we would have talked about it probably a lot more than we've talked about the Peralter news. Yeah. But I, at the end of the day, it, it's hard for me, and I think hard for a lot of folks to get up in arms about any of this stuff. Even, I, I'll say, I appreciate that you read that that note from my piece about Crocker. I was shocked when he said that. Like, I, I was kind of looking around the room like wondering if anybody else had caught it, and I think a few other people did. That was like a, a wild thing to say, and I had a chance to chat a bit with Matt Crocker. Seems like a nice guy. Seems like a smart dude. I, I was shaken to my core that that was like a sentence that came out of his mouth because of how silly it is, right? Like that's that's a strange thing to say. I can understand some of the attributes, saying that some of the attributes of, of the men's national team, the fact that it's a young group, the fact that they play exciting soccer, you know, looking for managers that do that stuff, but how closely he tied it. Maybe this was just poor, poor phrasing on his part. I don't know. You know I, maybe we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I, maybe we'll find out later. Who knows? But I, I was very surprised that he made it that clear that like, oh, hey, Greg Berhalter kind of set the blueprint and now like, oh, Greg Berhalter's back. That's crazy. That, that was weird to it's, me. There's, yeah. there's parts of this process that seem strange. Uh, the fact that it took so long, obviously, is still not a great look for U.S. soccer, but at the end of the day, this team was fun. Greg Berhalter is going to be the coach after the Gold Cup. He should be coaching the Gold Cup. It makes no sense that he's not. There were no satisfying answers as far as I'm concerned as to why that is yep. not going to be the case. But, and I'm not going to let any of this coaching stuff like damper how stoked I am about this team right now because if people watch these games, I think they will share every bit of the mm -hmm. excitement that we've tried to put into this episode. Yeah, and, and I also don't think there's any reason to expect that Berhalter comes in and says, like, all that attacking play, we're no done more. with that. We're, we're going back to slow ball retention. Uh, I, I, I think... I think I do love that uh, that with that quote from Crocker, like all I can picture is like, yeah, we we looked at all the models uh, under Burhalter and we determined that Burhalter's model best fits Burhalter's <laughs> model is a bit like Pam in the office holding up the two identical pictures that she's yes, tricking Creed yes. into trying to pick against me like they're the same picture. It feels very similar uh, in that way. Uh, but I, I think I want to with that said, uh, go back to just the optimistic point that there's a moment in the first half, uh, Canada have the ball. There is a chance for Osorio to split maybe four U.S. players and find Larea in space. And he starts to, and then checks down and plays it back to a center back. And there, that ball was on, and there's a, a lack of decisiveness there that I have seen so often in the past from U.S. players of just like, I don't trust myself to make that happen. I'm going to recycle possession. We're going to slow it down. I'm not sure about that one. And this team 
seems to back themselves pretty consistently on an individual basis, but also in the way they combine the way that they will go direct if it seems like it's on, but they will play in defeat if that seems like it's on. It just seems like a team that that backs themselves to make something happen. And I, I think we saw at points in the second half when the U.S. is just trying to play out that that ball that Osorio didn't want to hit gets hit for the United States and comes off. And I think that level of decision making, that level of intensity, but also that level of self-belief only has me feeling even more excited about this U.S. team. With that said, it will be a wholly different squad or mostly wholly different squad for the Gold Cup. So who knows how much that will carry over. But I think with that aside, optimistic times, exciting times to be a U.S. fan for sure. Taylor, I'm I'm right there with you. I don't think I have any other big picture or small picture thoughts on this game. It's it's just been a blast. Like it's it's been a ton of fun covering games here in person, getting to do that. Taylor, thank you for that, and thanks to listeners who make some of the stuff that we're able to do possible. Patreon folks, like everybody out there, it's it has been truly a ton of fun. That's awesome, Joe. That makes me very happy. Uh, what's what's the rest of your uh, your next couple of days like? When are you heading out? Uh, leaving as early tomorrow as I can stomach, given that I had plans to write an article tonight. That's probably not going to happen at this point, so that might be a morning oh, yeah. task. Um but yeah, it, driving back to Phoenix tomorrow and then getting back in the TSS regular routine saddle, which I'm looking forward to. There we go. Well, I will be off for the rest of the week. I think I'll be back for 101, maybe one episode. We shall see. Uh, but Joe Lowry, thank you again. Safe travels. Uh, your coverage has been excellent. Check out everything Joe has written on Backhield. Listen to the Mexico Review if you haven't listened to that one. Yes. And I'm assuming, if you're hearing me say this, that you're still listening to this one. So I won't <laughs> tell you to listen to this one unless you want to go again. Uh, but Joe Lowry, okay. thank you one more time, my friend. Taylor, it is late. Yeah, I would also assume that the people that are hearing this are listening to this as well. But I guess you can never be too sure. You never know. Yep. You never know. That could yep. be asleep, Joe. You don't know how things work. Listeners, thank you for listening, even in your your sleep. We very much appreciate it. And we'll talk to you again this week.